0: One of my uh, just the a, f- a fun part of the service is, uh, and especially you down here get to see it is when the little ones run out and they're going to to children's church. If you haven't been where you can see that, you need to uh, to be there. Just the the excitement and so on. And um, but I was kind of looking at some of the people today and I, I think I saw just a sign of jealousy in their eyes. And I, I was I was thinking now are they are they jealous that they're actually running out of the sanctuary at this point? Or are they jealous that they can still run and I can't run anymore. But I'm I'm choosing to believe the last part. Uh, we are in John 14 and we are in uh, the passage where uh, Jesus is, is trying to give to his disciples an answer for their troubled hearts. They knew he was going away. He had just told them. They knew that one from among them was, was going to be a betrayer. He had just told them that. And that that one was going to deny him that very night. And they knew that not only was he going away, but they couldn't go where he was going to go. You can imagine what they must have been feeling at that point. And he had begun this passage with let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. We're going to pick up with verse um, 15. And actually, uh, we talked about that last week, and and so we'll be looking at 18, but just to give you a little context. In verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself uh, to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow together. Father, I have no doubt that there are people here who walked into this sanctuary and their hearts are troubled. And the reason I don't have any doubt is not because I I necessarily know all of the circumstances of, of the people here, but we live in a troubling world and we live in a world that is filled with troubles. And so all of us at times will have troubled hearts. So Lord, will you help us to listen in as you deal with your your disciples and gave them comfort and then Will you help us to, to experience that same peace that was offered to them? And we would pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in this passage, the, the last part of uh, chapter 14. He's really going to be talking more and more about the Holy Spirit and and what that means for them, for uh, the disciples. This was was new to them. If you've been in a a church any length of time or even visited a church, you've heard about the Holy Spirit. Some of you have heard many teachings about the Holy Spirit And yet, this was given to them right in the context of them feeling confusion, uh, feeling the sting of what Jesus had just told them about what was going to happen. And not only that, within hours, it would get worse. Because they would see him arrested. They would see him uh, tried and unjustly convicted. They would see him tortured and put on a cross and eventually taken down and put in a tomb. All of this was about to happen. And Jesus had just said, Don't let your hearts be troubled. And began to introduce the Holy Spirit. So let's see what kinds of of things that that the Spirit will bring, first of all, to God's people. Um, The the first thing we're going to see here is he says to them in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And he's about to tell them, you will never be alone. Now, that had to be one of the things that, that they were, um, uh, had fearful hearts about. What do you mean you're going away? We're with you. We'll come. No, you cannot. And so um, he, he begins to teach and, and uses this. Now, if you, if you listen to different commentators, you read different commentators, they're going to give you different ideas of, of what he means when he says, I will come to you. And, uh, you know, sometimes I have a really strong opinion on these, and, and one commentator makes a whole lot of sense to me. Uh, but I, I want to tell you at least what uh, the various views are. Some... Uh, say he's saying I'll come to you and he's talking about the Holy Spirit because that's the whole context. He was talking about the Spirit before that and after that. And it could be. That's what he meant by that. Some think that when he said I will come to you he was actually talking about the second coming. I will come back and I will be with you. Now we know that's absolutely true. But I think that the the best interpretation here is he's actually talking about the resurrection. That's what they're going to need to know most immediately. And that is what they will see most immediately. And that is, look, you're going to feel all alone for the next few days. But I'll come to you. And he did. He walked out of the tomb and he came back to these same people. And he gave them comfort and he taught them and then he taught them more about the Holy Spirit and his coming. here's, Here's the reason I lean that way is without the resurrection, the Holy Spirit wouldn't come. Now Jesus here is using maybe the saddest illustration that he could in terms of of describing what they might have been feeling at that point when he says, I will not leave you as orphans. And I have to wonder if he, knowing their hearts, and he did know their hearts, whether he knew they were feeling like an orphan would feel. They weren't losing their parents, but they were losing... Their master, that they were growing in trust of. I'm sure they were, there was a sense of confusion, of feeling lost, maybe already feeling alone. And Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you like you're feeling right now, like, like orphans. Why not? Well, the reason they would never be orphans is because they were being adopted into God's family. So they would never really be alone. Look at what else we see here, verse 19. Yet a little while in the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, you in me, and I in you. This is, when, we, when, when it comes to theology, this is what we call union with Christ. And it is a precious doctrine that we probably say far too little about. Earlier in the, the encounter, Jesus had called these men little children. That's our identity as children of the living God. When we trust in Christ alone for our eternal life, then we have union with Christ. When we have union with Christ, here's basically what it means. We have all the rights and privileges. We, as his children, have all the rights and privileges That Jesus himself has. You believe that? And that's what he's teaching them here. He's about to die, but he says, Because I live, you also will live. Every privilege that was his is ours. Because when we are in Christ, the way he describes it, you in me and I in you. How is he in us? Well, we know that when Jesus walked out of the tomb, he had a body. And then we see him ascend into, into heaven with his body. But then what happened? That's when the Holy Spirit came And so the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of Christ, lives inside of all of his children. And that's why we aren't orphans. That's why we have all of the privileges and rights that he has. Because we are in him and he is in us. So when we talk about Jesus being in my heart, that's completely accurate. There's nothing wrong with that statement. But what we're really saying is that the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, is in my heart. And then he talks about really the ability to know Christ. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Now here he is again talking about keeping commandments. Now think about that. Here we are in the in the context of him trying to give deal with their hearts that are not experiencing peace. And one of the things he keeps coming back to is obedience. Doing what I tell you to do. Listen to Alexander McLaren. There are two motives for keeping commandments. One is because they're commanded, and one because we love him who commands. The one is slavery, and the other is liberty. The one is like the Arctic regions. In other words, just doing it because it's commanded. Cold and barren, and the other is like tropical lands, full of warmth and sunshine, glorious And glad fertility. So he's saying our motives, it's essential we have right motives in this. Our motives for obedience ought to be out of a love for Christ, a love for God, not out of slavery. Not, not I'm obeying because I have to obey. And I don't like it one bit. But because of who he is and what he has done for me. He goes on, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now again, we've always got to stop and clarify. You're not saved By obeying his commands. If you're you're trying to get salvation by obedience to the commands, you're going to be frustrated. You're going to be in constant guilt because you cannot keep his commands perfectly. But who did keep them? Jesus kept them. Jesus lived the perfect life. And so if we trust in him alone, we have union with Christ. And then those commands, instead of becoming a burden for us, they can be a delight. Your life will be better if you do what he says. And that's why he encourages us in that. Notice he says, uh, I'll love him and manifest myself to him. That The, the idea of manifest is not just uh, um, we'll see him, but we'll get to know him better. Now let's get real practical in terms of obedience. Let me give you just three aspects of obedience. Reading his word, praying, and worshiping. Go, yeah, yeah, you're the preacher. you got to tell us to do those things. Sunday school teachers, they tell us to do those things. You know why the preachers always tell you to do those things and Sunday school teachers always tell you to do those things? Because we want you to know Jesus better. That's it. That's it. I, I, don't, I don't get any extra pay if you read your Bibles Though if you would like to work that out somehow, I, no, it, it doesn't work that way. I really want you to know Jesus better. And here's the thing. If you don't do those things, if you don't read his word, if you don't pray, and if you don't worship with God's people and privately, you won't get to know him better. You just won't. Think of it this way. If you fall in love with someone, but you refuse to speak to that person or listen to that person or spend time with that person, that relationship will not only not grow, it will die. So what makes us think? Think that we can come to Christ and experience all of his benefits but refuse to to listen to him in his word or talk to him in prayer or be with God's people and and worship him, express our thanks and praise to him. James Boyce says, many Christians would be willing to do spectacular things if by that means they uh, could come to to know Christ better. In other words, you know, some Christians say, yeah, just show me what to do. I'll go, I'll go, I'll. But they're unwilling to do the commonplace things that are involved in simple obedience. If you obey, Christ will increasingly unveil his heart to you. That's what he asks for. And he desires to be with you. And then we see uh, in verse 22 through 24, he's really defining a relationship with Christ. Um, let's talk about this. Notice in, if, if you have the outlines or if you're following along, you, you might notice that I put this whole section in parentheses, defining a relationship with Christ. Um, because it's almost like this was a parentheses in his teaching. Uh, Here we have uh, Judas, and this is a different Judas, not the betrayer. Um, I believe elsewhere he's called uh, Thaddeus over in Mark. But he kind of interrupts, and here's what he says. uh, Verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? So, Here's what I, I think he's getting at. If you're manifesting yourself to us, like you just said you would, wouldn't it be better for you to not just do it for this little group of, of guys here, but to do it for the whole world? Think back to the Old Testament, to uh, God dealing with Pharaoh, you know, dealing with whole countries, whole nations, and 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 manifesting Himself in that way, and here you are with 11 of us right now. Wouldn't it be better? It says Jesus answered him, but he doesn't really answer that question. But here's what he says in verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Thaddeus didn't get him off track here. And my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. Here's the second time in this passage that Jesus has spoken of obedience and love. And then he says just the opposite. Um, uh, Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. So he's he's not hiding anything here. Uh, He's basically saying, look, if you don't obey me, then the simple answer is, you don't love me. That's why you're not obeying me. He doesn't hide it. He doesn't make it hard for them. We're not saved by our obedience, but if there's no obedience, there is no evidence that we're saved at all. Now, let me tell you, in our day, there, is, um, there are some, and some of them are in, in our kind of larger circles that don't like us preaching about you, got, you need to obey. And uh, some of them are preachers, and, and they say, look, if you talk about obedience, then that's going to diminish people's understanding of grace. Here's, here's kind of the thinking is, uh, you know, the minute you talk about obedience, somebody's going to think that's how you're saved. So all we can talk about is, is, is grace. Now, why do you think those Preachers or teachers would say that. There, there's, there's at least two categories, and probably everyone has their own reason for for saying that. One one category is those that that come from what we would call very legalistic churches. Churches that define what a believer is by what, what we don't do. You know what I mean? Here's what a believer is. We don't smoke and we don't chew and we don't go with girls that do, okay? (laughs) I didn't make that up, by the way. (laughs) Which is really sad that it's that well known. There are those. Or they have a, a list of rules. This is how... Long your dresses need to be. This is what you wear here and, and there. And this is what we can't do. Here's our list of things and places we won't go. That's what a believer is. Doesn't that sound joyful? So some have come out of that and they've come to understand God's free and amazing grace And because of that, they want to run as far as they can from from that kind of a view, and so they don't want to talk about obedience at all. And then there are others that have just come to understand his his grace so much that, that they don't ever want to say anything that will take the focus off of it in their view. But listen... Here's the problem with going that route, then you're not teaching what Jesus taught if you don't teach about obedience. He doesn't hide it one bit, neither did paul let me Let me read to you um, a, a verse that gives us a wonderful balance in Titus. This is from the apostle paul titus two eleven and twelve i'll I'll just read it, but you can look it up later. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Okay, so it talks about grace. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Do you see the, the beautiful balance there? It's because of his grace in our life that we then can live and desire to live obedient lives so you don't have one without the other. If you have no no grace, if you don't believe in grace, and all you do is obedience, it's a dry legalism. But if, if, if all you talk about is grace... We've forgotten the very nature of God—that He is a holy God—and He has every right to tell us what's best for us. Well, let's let's go on, and because He gets back after the parentheses uh, and talks about more benefits, He says. I, He will teach us all things. These things, verse 20, um, let's see, 25. These things I've spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. So in other words, they're going to be taught everything they need by the Spirit, but then he goes on and says, "Um, and bring, uh, bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, this is an important um, statement that he makes here. They're all important. Don't, don't get me wrong. But, uh, but this in terms of uh, uh, theologically looking at how we got the word of God, how we got the Bible, how God inspired uh, the apostles to write the New Testament, he's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit, would enable these same apostles to recall what Jesus had said to them and recall it accurately. As they wrote in the New Testament, it was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, in the New Testament, if you ever see the word inspiration, the word there literally means God breathed but here's, here's an important aspect of that. It's not that God found some really good writings of some men, and, and then he said, ooh, I like these, and he breathed something into them to bless them. It means God breathed them out. They came from God. And that's how they wrote the New Testament. Over in Second Peter one twenty one, it says this, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that word carried along is the same word that's used over in Acts 27 where it's talking about a ship being in a storm being carried along by the storm. It's not going where it wants to go. It's going where the storm takes it. And the, the second Peter passage is, said, is saying, these men, they went, went and said what God wanted them to say. He would bring to their remembrance all that he had said to them. Then we see him continuing to talk about peace. Look at verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. So Jesus would leave his disciples with two kinds of peace: the peace uh, peace with God, peace with God because of what He did on the cross, if they would uh, receive Him as savior. And then the peace of God. The peace of God doesn't change what's going on in their life. They would still go through trials. Most of them were martyred. They would have to go through that. And yet he says, look, even in that, even in the midst of that trial, you can have my peace. Now notice, he, he talks about, not as the world gives, do I give unto you. In that day, they had what, what uh, you, you've probably heard called in history, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. But ironically, the peace of Rome, uh, and, and basically what they were saying is that the whole Rome was in charge of the known world at that part, in that time. And they basically had kept the peace. So in essence, there wasn't a big war going on. There were always skirmishes. But there wasn't a big war going on. But historically, how did that happen? Well, it happened under a brutal sword. That's that's how the peace of Rome came about. And then it was maintained by a brutal sword. And the Jews and other Romans experienced the cut from that sword. They might have benefited from the peace, but they also experienced the brutality of it. So what about our world? How does our world offer peace? Let me just give you a list real quick. Escape. Avoidance. Denial. Positive thinking. Amusement. Materialism. Affairs. Running away? These are all ways that people will say, well, do this. James Boyce says the the world gives peace. Here's what he says. It's insincere since the motives seldom match the words. It's impotent since our peacemaking uh, seldom achieves more than a hostile truce. It's scanty because it is always giving less than what was possible. It's selfish, because it's often giving with a true desire of receiving in return, and so on and so on. So that's the way the world offers peace, and Jesus says, look, my peace is different. it's, It's none of that. My peace is different, and that's why even when you're in the middle of trials, you don't have to be troubled or afraid. And how do we get that? Trusting in Christ alone for our eternal life. So if your heart is troubled, he says, let not your heart be troubled, neither let him be afraid if your heart's troubled because of of the guilt of sin, Jesus offers peace with God because of what he did on the cross for his people. If your heart's troubled because of a trial that's going on in your life, and I know a number of you are going through trials right now, and a number of you have been through recent trials And some of you will face trials soon. If your heart is troubled because of that, know that the Holy Spirit is with you. You can have the peace of God, but ultimately, no matter what is going on in your life, if you're in Christ and he's in you, you can know that I have peace with God. And that's what he was telling his disciples who were about to face the trial of their lives. If your heart is afraid, know that Jesus is on the throne and in control. And because of that, your heart doesn't need to be afraid. And if you're afraid because you feel alone, know that just like his disciples... He will not leave you as an orphan. If you're feeling the pain that an orphan feels, he says, I'm with you, even to the very end of the age. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Let's bow together. Lord, it's easier said than done. But I can't imagine anyone in this room who would not want to experience peace with you and your peace as we go through whatever we have to go through in this life. Thank you for offering that freely in Christ.